But this morning, our text is going to be verses 12 through 15 in chapter 3 of Colossians. And if you're using a fancy blue Bible we provide for you underneath your seat on the floor, it's on page 984. So you can go ahead and turn there. And just as a little review, and, and to lead up, to bring us up to speed, to establish the context that is here in this passage, uh, I want to do a little recap of what we covered so far early in this chapter. In verses 5 through 8, we saw Paul mention to the Colossian Christians a number of the sinful attitudes and behaviors that they were to put to death and, and put away. And in the following verses, we saw his explanation as to why we were to do this. He said, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul pointed the Colossians back to the moment of their salvation, when God caused them to be born again so that they, in response to the gospel, repented and placed their faith in Christ. The Father had drawn them to his Son, and the Son had given them life by means of the Holy Spirit. God saved them. They were made alive and given a new heart and a new spirit. So in other words, they were a new creation. And so it is with every one of you who are in Christ. Everyone who believes the gospel, everyone is trusting in Christ. You are a new creation. God has caused you to be born again, and thus you are no longer who you used to be. The old self is put off, and the new self has been put on. We who are in Christ are no longer people who are enslaved to sin. We're no longer alienated from God. We're, we're no longer hostile in our minds towards him, and that's what we were in our natural fallen state until the Lord intervened. That person who we were with his or her sinful practices and way of life has been put off. And by the saving grace of God, our old self has been replaced with this, this new self, which is being conformed from the inside out to the likeness of Christ. And we are being renewed, Paul says, in knowledge after his image. Well, starting in verse 12 then, Paul begins to explain what this looks like, this renewal, being renewed in knowledge according to the Lord's image. He begins to explain what this looks like. He, he lists the qualities of Christ-likeness that should adorn us. Paul has already spoken to the fact that any earthly in it, or earthliness in us that is reminiscent of our old sinful ways should be stripped off and cast aside. And as Paul says in Romans, we are to instead put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So sinful attitudes and behavior, they are improper for those who have been redeemed from their bondage to sin and who now belong to Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. Therefore, we are to walk in righteousness. So the old self, along with its, keeping with this imagery, along with its soiled garments, was put off and replaced by the new self. And the new self, which has been washed and sanctified by the Spirit of God, 
requires a clean set of clothes, holy apparel. So in our text this morning, we'll see laid out for us proper Christian attire. So let's read the passage first, starting in verse 12, verses 12 through 15. Paul writes this, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So notice that Paul first points to the Colossian Christians' identity in Christ before he exhorts them to put on these godly virtues. He points to their identity first. He's essentially calling them to to live in a way that is consistent with who they now truly are. And who are they? Paul says they are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It is by the grace of God that they have been saved. It's not according to their works, but according to his mercy. And if you have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, it is because God chose you, not because you chose God. In your original natural state, the scripture says you were alienated from him. You were hostile in your mind towards him. You had no desire to please him, to seek him, to submit to him. That is rebellion. That's you in your natural your former natural state. And Paul had also he had said this early in his letter, alienated from him, hostile in mind towards him, doing evil deeds, living in a state of rebellion against God. However, God intervened. He graciously chose to save you. In fact, Scripture says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So this isn't a reaction to something good in us, good deed, or spiritual sensitivity, or anything like that. God had chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul wrote that in Ephesians. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. And at his appointed time, Scripture says he effectually called each one of us whom he had chosen beforehand to salvation, granting us repentance and faith so that we would believe the gospel and receive his Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Through the Holy Spirit, we have been united to the Son, and in this way, we not only have been set apart by the Father and thus made holy, which means set apart, But we are also recipients now of the love that the Father has for his Son. And as Paul said in Romans, nothing in all of creation will be able to to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when he saved you, he united 
you to his son. And therefore, he has indeed set you apart so that you are holy. And because you're united to your son, you're in Christ, you are now a recipient of the father's special love that he has for his son. He now shares with you or gives to you. You're holy and beloved. Indeed, you're God's chosen ones, as Paul said, holy and beloved. So how then ought you to live? If that is you, how then ought you to live? What characteristics should you bear? What qualities should you exude? Well, Paul gives us that answer in this passage. He, he basically says, you are to be Christ-like. You who are in Christ and who, like Christ himself, are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, are to clothe yourselves with the same virtues that Christ clothed himself with. So for those of us who have been united to Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and are are now identified with him, is it not fitting that we resemble him, that we look like him, at least in in our attributes and virtue? The Father predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, and when He called us, He he reconciled us to Himself in order to present us, Paul says earlier in this letter, to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. That is His will for us. That's His will for you. That is His purpose for us. And He Himself will indeed bring this to complete fulfillment when he ultimately glorifies us. Then we will be made like Christ in every way. We will be glorified. We will receive a resurrection like Christ, and we will be made perfect one day. Until that day, however, God has empowered us by his Spirit and equipped us with his word to put on the virtues of Christ and to grow in Christ-likeness. We're not being asked to do something that's impossible here when Paul says put on these things. God's equipped us with his spirit. He's empowered us by his spirit. He's equipped us with his word to put on these qualities, these virtues. Now, Paul does not say, since you are in Christ, compassion and kindness and patience and love will effortlessly flow out from you. Just wait and see. It's going to happen because, you know, God saved you, so just sit back You're going to just start being loving and patient and kind and humble. He didn't say that. He says, put on these things. Put on these virtues. And he commands this because it's something we must do. It will not come about apart from decisive action on our part. Instead, it requires our own prayerful Spirit-empowered determination and effort and discipline. You see, when God saves us, we are justified, declared righteous. And at that point, we are positionally sanctified. We are in Christ now, clothed in his righteousness. And until the Lord calls us home and he calls us to himself and, and we enter into glory, he is progressively sanctifying us, conforming us to the likeness of Christ. And Scripture tells us that that is something we must cooperate with the Spirit in. We must work at if we are to progress in it, to grow, to grow in that conformity 
to Christ-likeness. And we do this by prayerful, spirit-empowered determination and effort and discipline. Again, not, not in the flesh, not in our own willpower. We are relying on the grace and mercy of God to help us, the Spirit to empower us, the Word to equip us that we might work at these things. We must put into practice the reality of our position in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. You must put into practice the reality of your position in Christ. Paul basically says, you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now live this out. How? By adorning yourselves with the following qualities. So what you can imagine here is that there's before you this majestic wardrobe, and, and Paul is there like a master tailor, selecting for you the most excellent attire that not only will be the most appropriate for the important position that you hold, but will also have you looking your absolute best. And by the way, you, your best look in the eyes of God is that which resembles his beloved son. So what does Paul select for us that we might properly be clothed as God's holy and beloved chosen ones? Well, the first thing, we open it up, and he says, ah, right here, this, here you go. Put on, he says, compassionate hearts, put this on. Literally, he says, put on bowels of compassion. The bowels, that is, one's inward parts, inward parts, particularly one's internal organs, those were considered in the ancient world to be the seat and source of one's emotions. Of course, in modern English, we refer to the heart as the seat of our emotions. We say, I love you with all my heart. Not, I love you with all my bowels. just doesn't sound as good. So, but both capture the idea. That when we say that, our love is coming from the depths of our inner being. And the idea is that it is truly and deeply felt and thus is sincere. It's coming from the depths of my being. It's genuine. So when we consider that we are being, to call, we are being called to, to put on hearts of compassion, we are being told that compassion should be a prominent characteristic that marks the seed of our emotions. Here. Or here. Wherever. Somewhere in here. Compassion should not be absent, in other words. It should not be absent in our feelings toward others. Rather, it should be abundant. Compassion is, simply put, the display of concern over another's misfortune. Are you a compassionate person? Paul says to put on compassion. This should be a, a prominent characteristic, a quality in your emotions towards others. It is the display of concern over another's misfortune. It is a feeling of distress and pity over the suffering and, or misfortune of another. 
often accompanied by the desire to alleviate it. It's an emotion that, by definition, therefore, can only be felt when we are not focused only on ourselves, but are truly considering the interests of others. Did you think about that? If you, if you looked up a list of emotions, all kinds of emotions, compassion's unique because that one, you know, you can't experience in isolation by yourself. It, it by definition, is you looking to the interest of others. I mean, you can be happy by yourself or joyful or sad or any of those things, right? It's hard to think of any other emotion that strictly has you looking to others that can only be exercised towards others. Sin would have us completely close off our heart towards others, even towards those in the church, but that is unfitting for those who are in Christ, who himself was full of compassion, was he not? His heart went out to people. He had compassion. Next, Paul says, we are to put on, all right, so compassionate hearts. Ah, yes. Kindness. Put this on. It goes well together. Compliments it. Kindness. Kindness. This is the quality of being helpful or beneficial. Helpful or beneficial, that's kindness. It is the desire and willingness to do good to others and to be generous. We could tie these descriptions together uh, and simply define kindness as good and generous helpfulness. That's what kindness is. It is good and generous helpfulness. When you put on kindness... You put on a readiness to go out of your way to assist others. It's appropriate that kindness follows compassion, right? For if compassion is having concern over another's misfortune, along with the desire to provide some kind of relief, well, kindness is the disposition to act upon that desire. So in addition to compassionate hearts and kindness... Paul also pulls out of this majestic wardrobe humility. Put on humility, he says. Humility really can be defined by its counterpart, but it's not. It is the opposite of pride and arrogant and boastfulness. It is the grace of lowliness. That's what humility is, the grace of lowliness. It is the quality of regarding others as more important than yourself. That was Paul's definition in Philippians chapter 2. As he said in that passage, verses 3 through 5, here's what he said. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's essentially a definition of humility. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Because they're important as well. And you're thinking of them as more important than you. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
And then in the rest of this passage, Paul then pointed them, the Philippian Christians, to they, he pointed them to Christ as the greatest example of humility. God the Son voluntarily stepping down from his glorious throne room in heaven in order to take on flesh and to be born into this fallen world in the humblest of circumstances, not in order to be served, but in order to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Humility is what Christ was clothed with. It is how he came into this world. And here, here's, here's the, something we can consider with the quality of humility. It essentially is what, what will make room in our hearts for true compassion and kindness. I mean, there's no compassion and kindness. There's, you know, there's uh, no vacancy in a, a proud heart. Humility makes room. Much room for compassion and kindness, at least true compassion and kindness. After humility, Paul tells us to put on meekness. Meekness. A number of other translations use the word gentleness here. So meekness, gentleness. Meekness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. So if you are meek, then you don't feel compelled to fight or argue with those who offend or oppose you. You don't feel compelled to fight or argue with people who are opposing you or offending you. And this is not due to being weak or timid. That's not what meekness is. Rather, it's the result of being gentle and self-controlled. There's a restraint there. And actually, more than just a a self-control, there's a disposition of of just gentleness that doesn't seek to lash out, even though one could. The one who is clothed with meekness doesn't insist on retaliating, fighting for his rights, defending his honor, or immediately vindicating himself before others. doesn't insist on that doesn't have a knee-jerk reaction to those who slight him. Not overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. One commentator puts it this way, meekness is not to be confused with weakness, but contains the elements of a consideration for others and a willingness to waive one's rights. To wave one's rights. Such are the characteristics of the one who is not overly impressed by a sense of her, his or her self-importance. Next, on this list, Paul tells us to put on what? Patience. Patience is the quality. Again, in this context, he's not talking about just being able to remain cool while waiting for a particular outcome, standing in a long line, sitting in bumper-to-bumper rush-hour traffic. Just keep cool, man. I'm patient. Well, that's, that, that is a kind of patience, and that would be good. You should. You should be patient in that regard. But there's another definition of, pa- of patience that 
is being pointed to here. This is the way he's using the term. It's the quality of being able to bear up under provocation, a more direct provocation. I mean, bumper-to-bumper cars aren't directly provoking you. You might imagine they are, but they're not. Um, Again, meekness would say, I'm not insisting on my own self-importance that I alone have to get past all these cars because I am the most important person on the planet, and I must get to my destination. Everyone move. (laughs) Patience is the quality here in this context. When he says put on patience, yes, be patient in the way we typically use it, but be patient in this sense, being able to bear up under provocation. One commentator expands upon this and says, of the one who has a spirit of patience, that the foolishness and stubbornness of others never drive him to cynicism or despair. Their insults and their ill treatment never drive him to bitterness or wrath. He's patient. He bears up under such provocation. Another commentator says this, if kindness refers to our basic approach to people, right, if you think about it, you know, you have compassion, but kindness is, is following up on that and doing the good. If kindness refers to our basic approach to people, so patience refers to the kind of reaction we should display toward them. How should you react towards others? especially those in the body of Christ. Be clothed with patience. Patience should be your reaction. We're a bunch of difficult people, aren't we? Patience will get us very far. Put it on. Now, Paul goes on in verse 13 to clarify what the grace of patience involves. That's what we can think of this as, because he's giving us this list, and he kind of pauses here. And after he says patience, he expands on this term, on this concept, on this quality, this grace. Put on patience, he says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, right? Bearing up under provocation. Now let's consider something first. Paul has been telling the Colossians that they, they need to put on these Christ-like virtues, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and patience, meekness and patience. And he, and he pauses here to expand upon the concept of patience. So consider this. The call to put on these virtues is a call for everyone in the church to work on what? Essentially to work on themselves, to work on them. Selves. I mean, he's telling them to put on these things. They're, they're to work on their own hearts, are they not? It's a call for all of us to work on our own hearts. So guess what? You, you can't put these qualities on other people. Like, I'd love to give that brother some patience. I would love to give him some compassion. You can't put it on others. I mean, you can be an example to them, you can be an encouragement to them, but you can't clothe them with these qualities yourself. It is as each person yields to the Spirit of God and obeys the Word of God that each one makes progress in this matter and succeeds in doing these things. 
And it is because of the fact that we are all works in progress that we are all at different stages in our sanctification and maturity in Christ. In our graces, we're at different points. God is working in each and every one of us. We are works in progress. And it is because of this fact that we definitely need to be patient towards one another. We must, as Paul says, be bearing with one another. In other words, bearing with one another, putting up with one another, putting up with one another, and enduring difficulty. Again, difficult people. Endure it. Endure the difficulty. Put up with each other. All right, there's a command. The Lord bless you. Go. Apply it. Now, the fact that we all stumble along the way in our own sanctification means that at times, well, we will show towards one another a lack of compassion or kindness or humility or meekness or patience. Therefore, it is all the more important that we ourselves are clothed with patience, that we personally are clothed with patience, so that when this happens to us, when someone is lacking in compassion or kindness or humility, falls a little short, we may be ready to extend grace. Bear with them. Being clothed with patience and bearing with one another is critical to the unity of every local fellowship of believers. If you are unwilling to bear with your brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church, in any local church, then you will eventually bail. And you'll do the same thing at the next local church you join because the people there, well, they're also works in progress, just like the rest of us. And at some point, you're going to somehow be offended. What are you going to do? Church hop forever? Right? There are no perfect churches. Always have to remember that, right? Because they're filled with what? Imperfect people. Come on who worship the perfect one, the Lord Jesus, who is sanctifying them. But he does this, he works this out with us and in our lives as we uh, remain attached to a corporate body because he, he does this through one another. It's a sanctifying influence, not just through his word, but through the people of God. You don't stick around, you're going to miss out on your sanctification progress. You know, too often... We expect others in the church to bear with us, and yet we forget that we are likewise to bear with them. You know, you might think, brother's got to bear with me. It says, bear with one another. It's like, oh, that's right, I've got to bear with him when he fails to bear with me. So we work on ourselves. We're to bear with the other. The responsibility is on us to bear with others. This must be a reciprocating grace in Christ's church, one another. Now, what if, let's just say, I mean, maybe this never happens, but what if a brother or sister actually wrongs you? What if someone treats you unjustly? And we're talking about brother or sister, right? Especially someone in the church, right? They should know better. I mean, you could say, well, they're lost, you know. God hasn't saved them yet. They're still driven by sinful desires. Lord, help me be patient with these people. But man, a brother or sister in Christ, 
They have the Holy Spirit. How dare they wrong? I can't believe that. Unacceptable. What if, what if that happens to you? Well, Paul doesn't say that we are to be continually bearing with others in our fellowship unless someone sins against us. At which point it's time for us to find a new church. Here's what he says. Put on patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. The Lord said in the Gospel of Matthew, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Work it out. If he listens to you, I added that work it out part. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We are to be reconciled. We are to seek peace. Following his teaching, the text says, Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? It's pretty generous, right? Seven? Jesus said to him, Oh, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, Peter. In other words, what is he saying? He's not like, so you keep track. It's going to be hard. But once you hit 77, you really gave him a chance. I mean, it's, you know, this, this number, that's, or the number that symbolizes, you know, this idea of perfection, 70 times 7. The idea is it's just a lot. In other words, there, there's to be no limit to our forgiveness. That's his point. There's to be no limit to our forgiveness of those who sin against us. What else did the Lord say about forgiveness? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, the Lord said in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There's no conditions attached to that, right? I mean, if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, He's really got some issues. There's some problems here. If he sins against you seven times a day, what do we do then, Lord? I mean, come on. But then if he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So how are we to forgive one another? Paul says in the second half of verse 13, back in our text, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. How did the Lord forgive you? How did he forgive? I mean, yes, he did forgive you. But Paul says, as the Lord forgave you. How did he forgive you? Here's how he forgave you. He forgave you freely. He wasn't under compulsion to do it. He forgave you graciously. I mean, it's not like you did a whole lot to kind of earn that forgiveness. He did it generously. All your sins, past, present, future are forgiven. He did it completely. No partial forgiveness here. It's like, okay, I forgive you. I'm going to keep watching you. I'm going to hold that against you at some point. (laughs) Completely. And he did it, what, permanently. When you forgive someone, that's it. That, That offense is cast into the depths of the sea. You won't call it to mind. You won't hold it over against that person. It's done. Reconciled, right? Keep short accounts. If we truly are going to be bearing with one another, then we must be ready and willing 
to forgive each other in this way. Otherwise, the, the bearing with one another ain't going to last long if you're not ready to forgive time and time again. One commentator provides this insight concerning verse 13. He says, Paul at length explains what he meant by long-suffering patience. Here's what he meant. That we embrace each other indulgently. That's the bearing with one another. We embrace each other indulgently and forgive also where any offense has been given. As, however, it is a thing that is hard and difficult, he confirms this doctrine by the example of Christ and teaches that the same thing is required from us that as we who have so frequently and so grievously offended have nevertheless been received into favor, we should manifest the same kindness towards our neighbors by forgiving whatever offenses they have committed against us. Well, now we come to verse 14. Paul saved the greatest piece for last. Ah, the one that ties it all together. Put this on. This completes it. What does he say? Above all these put on Love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, real quick, a more literal translation would be this. And above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That is, it is is the perfect bond, the uniting bond Love is the supreme virtue. It motivates and drives the other virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience would not be virtuous without love. So Paul says that above all of these, we must put on love, which he says is the bond of perfection. What does it bind together? Us, the church, we who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, love binds us together. The other virtues don't bind us together. You're not bound together by humility. We're bound together by kindness. No, no, we're not bound together by those other virtues. It is love that binds us together. Love is the bond of perfection. Elsewhere, Paul refers to it as the bond of peace. Paul said earlier in this letter that we were knit together in love. We've been knit together in love. And here he says that love is the bond of perfection, the perfect bond. Nothing else can bring us closer together and make us stick together longer than love. It is the perfect bond. There is no greater bond between men, people. Jesus said that our love for one another is how the world will know that we are his disciples. 
And the more we love one another, well, guess what? The more we will demonstrate compassion, the more we will demonstrate kindness and humility and meekness and patience towards one another. And the more we'll be bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Therefore, Paul says, put on love above all else. And finally, Paul says in verse 15, here he, he adds this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And it is his peace that will guard our hearts and minds through the struggles of this life. That is, if we refuse to be anxious over such things and instead take them to the Lord in prayer, his peace will guard our hearts and minds. And Paul says here in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule, or in other words, be the decisive factor in your hearts. One commentator explains it this way, in general, Paul wants the Colossians to make peace the arbiter, the factor that should be given preference over competing concerns and interests. You see that? Peace is the factor that's given preference over competing concerns and interests. The peace that characterizes the new self should be a ruling principle or virtue in our innermost being, and it should affect all our relationships. In other words, whenever there are issues that could potentially compromise your love for one another, let the peace that comes from Christ be prevailing in your heart so that you pursue what makes for peace. After all, Paul says, peace is what God called you to as one body. In Christ, we not only have peace with God, but we're also to have peace with one another. Since Christ is in all of us and is all to us, as Paul mentioned back in verse 11. Therefore, we should pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. And we will do this as we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And Paul concludes with one more exhortation. He says, be thankful. We have so much to be thankful for to God, do we not? God who graciously chose to save us and now regards us as holy and beloved sons and daughters. God who for has given us his grace, his forgiveness. He's given us his wisdom and instruction. He's given us the hope of glory, which is ours in Christ. We could go on and on of how much we have to be thankful to God for. And one commentator summed up this, this, this call to thankfulness as a concluding point of Paul. He said, believers who are full of gratitude to God for his gracious calling will find it easier to extend to fellow believers the grace of love and forgiveness and to put aside petty issues that might inhibit the expression of peace in the community. So, there we have it. Proper Christian attire. We've been shown what it is. Essentially, put on Christ's likeness. With thankful hearts that are being ruled by the peace of, that comes from Christ, we need to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and above all else, what? Love for one another. And guess what? Your love for God, your love for Christ is made visible, is demonstrated by your love for one another. Proper Christian attire. Since we have communion this Sunday, and I already went over time, I will not close in prayer. I'll allow, allow 
Pastor Jeremy, to lead us in prayer as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, which is a fitting conclusion to this text and these things that we're being called to. This idea of unity in the body is what's pictured here. Amen.